you will take out your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17, our sermon text for this morning will be verses 1 through 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's found on page 160 of the Pew Bibles before you. You may be wondering why we're in Deuteronomy this morning um, as we've been going through First Peter, and the simple answer is that uh, I have my candidacy exam next month, and the examiner assigned to us this text, and so it, it was on my mind, it was on my heart, it was ruminating in my thoughts, if you will, and, and I wanted to share this with you all this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 17, let us listen with reverence and with awe. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any year of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, or has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told to you and you hear of it, then you, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel... Then you shall bring out of your gates that man or that woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now if you'll also turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, that will be our New Testament, New Testament text this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll be reading chapter, uh, verses 1 through 13. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was del deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the, of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is, that, sorry, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass with a roar, away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are to be done on it will be exposed. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we come before you this morning as we consider this difficult text. We ask that you would uh, give us eyes to hear and ears to hear, that it would encourage us, that it would lead us to Christ, and that we would rightly handle the word of truth and this word of life. Father, encourage us, bless us, nourish us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is indeed the truth that one of the, one of the greatest struggles of the Christian life is continuing to remember the faith and the love that we had when we first believed and the privilege that it is to call on God. The reality of God's saving work, work can often fade into the background uh, into the background and, and the mundaneness of everyday life, in the toil, in the stress, and in the endless worries and the endless list of things that trouble our hearts and our minds. We perhaps forget or we perhaps underestimate what it means to be in relationship with God, to be in a covenant with Him, and to be somebody that can call on this triune God in faith, to believe in His name. And over the course of the Christian life, if we're not careful, there's oftentimes a sense of, or, or, or a loss of shock at the reality that we can confess the name of God Almighty as our rock and our help in ages past uh, for our deliverance from sin and from death and for our provision and our daily bread. And perhaps this text seems disconnected from that struggle. After all, it's about an imperfect sacrifice, which it says are detestable to God, and it's about idolaters and the penalty that they incur, the penalty that should be brought upon them. And it seems distant from us. It seems like a fever dream with little to teach us or little to instruct us about the Christian life, about our God as our Savior, about how He provides for us our daily bread. And I think this impulse is wrong, of course. And one of the things that leads us to that impulse is, is perhaps looking at the Israelites and this struggle to offer the perfect sacrifice and this struggle to abstain or refrain from idolatry as though it's somehow removed from us. We, we have a habit of looking at Israel as though they were primitive and, and stupid. It's not so hard, we might think to ourselves, to not be idolaters. How could they do that? It's not so hard to offer the right sacrifice to the Lord. It wouldn't be so hard to inspect a lamb and make sure it doesn't have blemish. But I think if we stop and if we look at ourselves for just a moment, we recognize and, and if we analyze all the small things that God asks of us, we see for a moment that we fail oftentimes in more ways than we can't care to admit we feel quite a bit. Not just because it, it doesn't meet the standard of what God asks of us, the perfect righteousness that we need, but we often do it for the wrong reason. We don't do it to the glory of God. And if we think idolatry is easy to avoid, we think ourselves better than the Israelites and we kind of impugn them as these primitive people. 
Idolatry uh, is a conscientious choice, and yet Israel consistently fell and made that mistake. Uh, And the reality is that they were surrounded by pagan nations who worshipped the sun gods, the moon gods, and the stars, and the heavens, and the Baals. And we too live in a pagan world surrounded by pagan nations that worship other gods. We too are susceptible to the gods of our age. We too are tempted to exchange the worship of the triune God as Savior alone for the gods that we can see, uh, for the gods that we can shape or fashion to our own senses, or for the gods that do appeal to our senses. And we too might feel the temptation to say Jesus plus something else. Or we too might feel the pressure of the world towards syncretism. To say that all religions are okay. Just be consistent with what you believe and you'll be alright. Or to not want to be exclusive with regard to what saves and who is God. Clearly, these are things that are prevalent in 21st century thought, and clearly these are things that are tempting, uh, maybe not us personally, we might feel, but at least the church abroad. Well, this passage teaches us of the purity of God's covenant. It teaches us that purity should characterize the people and their worship. It teaches us that a perfect and eternal sacrifice was needed to atone for sin, and that perfect, unblemished Worship of God was needed to merit life. And that's a hefty standard. But from this, it also teaches us of how Christ fulfills these and how he secures the eternal comfort of, of, the, of the covenant and the eternal purity of the covenant and of God's people. And it's from this, from the, the surety of Christ fulfilling in the the security that he achieves of this covenant that we are both reminded of the joy that it is to call on God and encouraged to hold fast to God in faith and in love and in joy. So we have three points this morning as we consider that this morning. The purity of the covenant, the curses of the covenant, and the eternal security of the covenant. The purity of the covenant, the curses of the covenant, and the eternal security of the covenant. So first, the purity of the covenant. The first thing that we see is that these are regulations for covenant life in Israel. And their their regulations in particular set up to maintain the purity and the distinctness that Israel had from the other nations. This is especially the case as they are about to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land that God is giving to them. God is to be their God and they are to be His people. And this relationship required work to maintain. And so we see evidence of that in verse 1 and verse 3. Pure worship and pure sacrifices was required to maintain this special relationship that God had with with His people and that marked them as separate from all of the other nations. And the first thing we see of those regulations is pure offerings. God demands that every sacrifice that they brought before Him would be without blemish. So to offer an an impure sacrifice, verses 1 and 2 says, is detestable to God. Even more so, it is, the word it uses there, it it is an abomination. It is severely offensive to him. That word is superlative. Abominable. The word in Hebrew is generally used to describe a profane offering. 
or the way that God perceives the pagan nations. So this offering has ethical value. It is profane and unacceptable if it is without blemish. To offer such a thing is an abomination in the same way that the pagan nations and the pagan actions are abominations to him. In Leviticus chapter 22, God teaches the people extensively on offerings. And we learn that if their worship, if their offering is to be acceptable, that that sacrifice was to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. And the purpose of these offerings was to maintain and remain in a harmonious relationship with God so that they could approach the temple and so that they could keep God, as it were, in the temple. And these offerings symbolize the carrying away of their guilt. And what they're doing then is then enabling the people to approach God and to dwell in that land of God and for God to remain in that land with them. And this section in Leviticus chapter 22 closes commanding obedience to these regulations and these sacrifices, and it does so saying this, You shall not profane my name in order that God may be sanctified. Now, sanctified, sanctification in the Old Testament is different. When they use that word, it's different than what we mean now when we describe sanctification. Sanctification in the Old Testament means to treat as holy or distinct or to treat as Entirely different, entirely separate, wholly other. In order that my name may be sanctified. And he goes on to say, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who makes you different, who makes you separate, who distinguishes you from the pagan nations. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And the whole point of these regulations on pure and spotless sacrifices is that those made separate from the nations by God might treat Him as separate, might reflect the very nature of what He has done to them in their dealings with Him. He has made us holy. He has made us sanctified. We are to sanctify Him. We are to make, treat Him as though He is separate as though he is distinct from all other things, from all within creation. And in doing this, in treating God in this way, we, we give him glory that's due, that, due to his name. He is, we are reflecting the reality that he is majestic and robed in splendor and majesty. And these sacrifices were essential to how they would maintain this sacred identity and give glory to God and regard him as holy. Symbolized the washing away of their guilt. The washing away of their guilt that they need to maintain and approach Him in this way. To be separate. To be holy. So to fail to do this, to fail to give God something uh, that is acceptable to Him and instead give Him something unacceptable is to, by inference, treat God as the pagan nations would. It's to treat him as common. It's not to recognize the reality that he is entirely separate and distinct and majestic and above creation. Therefore, it is an abomination and it fractures his relationship with them. Malachi 1 shows the, the fruition of this when Israel failed to do this. He says in chapter 1 verse 8, To offer that to your governor, that is an impure offering, will he accept you and show you favor? How can you think God will do the same? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord your God. 
So impure offerings, profane God, they treat him as common. But what about idolatry? Well, in the second section, we see that pure worship and idolatry uh, for any of the sun gods, the moon gods, or any of the hosts of heaven is a violation of the covenant. It's the gravest error that one can make. We hear in both Deuteronomy and throughout the, the entirety of the Old Testament this covenant language. We've already seen it reflected. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the covenant formula. After we hear these words, we also often hear that I am the Lord your God who has delivered you from bondage, who has sanctified you, who has set you apart as his own. Kids, we very commonly read Exodus 20, don't we? And what are the opening words? I am the Lord your God. Who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first thing that we hear. Deuteronomy 2 recounts this history of God's salvation. In chapter 4 it says, Watch yourselves carefully. Be on guard. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars or all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the, heaven, the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you. This is significant. The pagan gods are for the rest of the world, but the Lord has taken you. And he's brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be his people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. God is to be their God. His identity is bound up in his saving acts, which, in which we see that he delivers them to make them his people. And we see in this formula of deliverance, not to call on other gods as the rest of the nations do, the reality that we're not to be any kind of people giving worship to the sun and the moon and to the hosts of heaven, like the nations of Egypt did, and Canaan, who called on Baal, the thunder god, to give them rain and, 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 and water their crops. They are to be the people who, who call on His name, who sanctify, regard, reveal, and give glory to Him alone as their Savior, as their God Almighty. And it's clear in all of this, in God's mighty acts and His saving acts, that God is not a God of wood and stone, nor is He a part of creation. He is the one who parted the sea. He brought the plagues upon Egypt and put, in doing so, put the Egyptian gods to shame. They are to worship Him alone as Savior and Deliverer. And so we see that violation of this has certain consequence. Why? Because the nature of idolatry is that one is abandoning the God, of, uh, the God who has saved them and breaking his covenant. Verse 2 calls it a transgressing, a trampling underfoot of God and his covenant. So to worship another God is to treat as common, to disregard the reality that this transcendent God, whose mighty acts and outstretched arm they witnessed all throughout the wilderness and all throughout Egypt, to treat him as common. It's to snub him rather than sanctify him. It's to trod him underfoot rather than to regard him as holy. It's to treat him as less than the only Savior, the only Deliverer, and the only mighty transcendent Lord God Almighty, the Lord of angel armies. Idolatry, therefore, 
is not one sin among many. It is an ultimate sin and rejection of God that treats him as less than he is. And this is significant. One cannot simply say God plus something else. It is God and God alone. We also learn from Deuteronomy that he is a jealous God. I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant language. Take care, Deuteronomy 4 says, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. He will not share his lordship or his saving guardianship of the people with any other God. He may only be worshipped as God alone. The rule is simple. One God who deserves our pure exclusive, exclusive worship and anything else other than this is to treat him as less than the triune, tri- transcendent, mighty one. And the reality is that this is difficult. It's difficult to maintain the covenant in this sense. Because we are, like Israel, human beings. Moses warns and repeats the commands about idolatry multiple times throughout Deuteronomy, throughout Exodus, throughout Leviticus, for a reason. And that reason is that if we are not careful, it is easy to fall into these and so treat God as common. God instructs us to be on guard, to be careful, to be watchful, so as not to violate this covenant by treating him as common. And treating him as common or profaning his name is not just about going after other gods explicitly. To obey, to obey the command regarding idolatry is to look to him and him alone for salvation, for provision, for deliverance, and for our care. The Heidelberg picks up on the first aspect that we normally associate with idolatry. It says that we avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures which includes shaping or fashioning gods in our image, and it also includes shaping or fashioning the triune God of the Bible to our image to condone the way that we want to live or our actions or our desires. We worship God as He is, not as we want Him to be. And we actually learn this, for example, in John chapter 5, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, He tells them, depart from me, I don't know you. On what basis? He condemns their worship because they deny Him as the Son of God. All their religiosity is what they want. They deny who God claims to be. But the Heidelberg goes further. It also says that we have a duty to fulfill, uh, to rightly know the true God, to trust Him alone and to look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently in love and honor Him with all our hearts. And the difficulty of this is demonstrated in Israel's history over and over and over again. They turn to other gods. They turn to Baal to, trust, uh, to, to bless their crops. They trusted in their own military tactics for deliverance. They turned to pagan nations and treaties to deliver them from invading armies. They oftentimes treated God like he was a genie in a bottle. And we think, for example, of Saul who refused to wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice, but instead wants to go ahead with the battle, and so he takes it into his own hands, and he, sa- he makes the sacrifice himself. And for this, treating God as common, he is cut off. 
Maybe then we need the reminder to treat God as the holy triune Savior who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Maybe we need the reminder to be on guard so as to faithfully fulfill the duty to call on Him, to look to Him, to trust Him alone for salvation, for deliverance, and for our daily bread. Maybe we need the reminder so that we don't give in to the gods of the nations that appeal to our senses or our inclinations and so treat God as common. Or maybe we need the reminder to recognize what a joy it is that we can call on this triune, transcendent Lord God Almighty as our God, our Savior, our Helper, our Redeemer, and our Friend. This passage doesn't just teach us about the demands of the covenant and the purity of the covenant. It also teaches us about the curses of the covenant. A person cannot worship other gods and transgress his covenant and make him unacceptable and profane in God's sight and still dwell in God's land. How could those, we could put it as a question, how could those who derive him of his glory and of his majesty and treat him in such a profane way, expect to continue to live in that land where God's presence dwelt. They are to be met with a sentence of death. Verse 6 shows us the severity of the pronouncement that's, that's given to them. It's so severe that they are literally referred to as the one who is to die. That is their new identity, not my people, not kingdom of priests, not a holy nation, not my inheritance. The one who has transgressed God by this evil is now simply the dead one. And this punishment is an expression of judgment that carries heavy symbolism. Verse 5 teaches us that those who are found guilty are to be taken outside of the city gates, or rather to the city gates, but that likely means that they're brought outside the city gates when they are to be stoned. And this casting out, this judgment of death symbolizes that they are actually cut off from the covenant. They are cast out of the people of God. And so in the context of this holy kingdom, life corresponds to covenant obedience and death corresponds to covenant sanction and cutting off. So to be cut off in time and to receive this death penalty in this way is also a final verdict. It signals that and is a picture of the reality that this person will receive eternal judgment and will not be a recipient of God's saving benefits. And it's fitting when we consider that to be in the covenant and to obey the covenant by fearing the Lord and by honoring Him and keeping His commandment is itself life. Life is fruitfulness, it is blessedness, it is flourishing in God's land. But to reject God, to reject his covenant, is to reject life, it's to reject its blessings, it's to reject its fruitfulness, it's to reject the goodness of life promised for obedience in the land. So then this legal verdict for death, for this dead one, corresponds to their actual reality in relation to the covenant, to be outside of the covenant, to be disobedient is to be a dead one because disobedience corresponds to death. 
whereas life corresponds to fruitfulness, to blessedness, to flourishing. And this sentence is important not just because they have sinned against God and greatly offended Him. It's also important because God's people are to be seen as a whole, as pure and holy. And they, as a collective, are to maintain this holiness, are to maintain this purity. They, as a whole, as a collective, are to be set, away, set apart from the nations as those who actually do call on the name of the Lord, who do revere Him, and to, who do give Him the majesty that's due to His name. And this cannot be done if impurity remains in the midst of Israel with those who are covenant violators, who, are, who act as the pagans do, who pervert them, who profane the people. And it remains important, this, this purity of the people as a whole, it remains important if they wish to remain acceptable as his kingdom of priests, who are offering to him acceptable worship, who wish to dwell in this land. So this thing is rightly speaking not just an abomination to God, it is an abomination in Israel. That the whole people, so much so that the, the whole people are called to cast out this person and exercise judgment on them. Another parallel passage to this, Deuteronomy 13, speaks in great detail with regard to idolatry. It depicts leaders, friends, and husbands, and wives, and daughters, and so on, enticing others to worship other gods. And they, this passage says, shall be put to death, just as verse 7 of our passage. And it, and it concludes when it sentences death there, so you shall purge evil from your midst. It also depicts a whole city that is given into idolatry. And that whole city, Deuteronomy 13, is to be devoted to destruction, the people and everything in it. Nothing is to be taken. Not the remaining gold, not the cows, not the goats, not the pots. And this must be done... Deuteronomy 13 teaches if Israel is to continue to receive God's compassion and his mercy. And then it, so, and, and in this way, it, it, it's put upon the people, his priestly judges, to execute God's judgment on his behalf. And great care is, is taken in this. It's a serious accusation. The judgment requires at least two or three witnesses, and this shows the care that was taken for the maintenance of justice and for the uh, and how much regard was had for righteousness in general and for this kind of an accusation. It also shows us the care that we should have in defending God's honor. Impurity, idolaters who treat God as common affect the whole. And they present a serious danger to the purity, the security, and the maintenance of God's people. These sorts of idolaters in the presence of this pure community will lead others away from God and from his Christ. So idolaters for Israel had a collective effect on the whole of God's people. It impacts everyone's relationship with God. Idolatry would pollute the whole city, and so they are called, each of them, to purge this evil from their midst so that only righteousness remains. So that only those who treat God as 
the majestic king of glory remain and so that they themselves are acceptable to him. Therefore, when this happens, when an idolater is discovered, this sentence cannot be avoided for God's people to remain God's people. This is to be a holy community. It can't be a holy community if it's not composed of people that call on the name of the Lord. One theologian argues that this was also Adam's duty in his priestly function, that is, the purging of this kind of evil from the midst of God's people, to cast out evil from the midst of God's dwelling. He was to cast out the devil. And so too Israel was to fulfill this and fulfill their priestly duty and keep their land, the place of God's dwelling, pure and holy. And so the reality is then that even in our day, we want to be a part of this pure people of God who call on his name alone and no other helps. We want to be a part of those who render to him the glory, the the laud, the praise, the honor that is due to his name. We want him to be our God and we want to be his people rather than transgress and fail to maintain true and proper worship of him and him alone. And so this leads us to conclude Thank God. If, if this is what it means, if this is the consequence of, uh, uh, that comes upon the kind of person or will come upon the kind of person who is an idolater, who does not call on Jesus alone, who does not magnify the name of, alone, who, uh, of God alone, who does not give to God the respect and reverence that he deserves, if this is what is coming for them, thank God that in this place, we sing, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. We are a community of people who have covenant life rather than being a community, community characterized as dead. So I know this text is a heavy text. It's bare law, it would seem. But it's not. It's a reminder. It moves us to turn to the Lord with renewed joy for life because we know him. We see in the judgment for being outside, for being an idolater, what it means to be one who is blessed, one who has life, one who does reverence God's name, who does know him. So for those who confidently call on his name and believe in him, you actually have great hope in Christ. And for those who do commit idolatry, it's not just an indictment, it's an invitation to turn to the living God and to become one who has life rather than to remain one who blasphemes his name and who is under death. Just as Israel was called to purge this evil from their midst, so too God will return, as 2 Peter chapter 3 teaches, he will return to purge the new heavens and the new earth, the new place of his dwelling. He will purge that land from all of the evil and from the idolaters who profane his name. And you who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ will remain imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and incorruptible forever. And then what will happen is that you will actually offer perpetual praise to God and there will be no risk and no tin. Uh, rather, you will give, you could put it this way, you will give to God and the, the, the fullness of the glory that is due to his name 
and you will understand in greater measure just how glorious and mighty he is. In the fullest sense of the word, when God comes again to purge evil from this world, he will be our God and we will be his people and we will be eternally satisfied and secure and safe and set apart for him, by him, and in him forever. I'm sure some of you are looking at the time thinking, that's the second point. (laughs) Third, the eternal security of the covenant. Let us not assume the conclusion that we've just made. How is it that we can say such a thing that we, we will be eternally clothed in the righteousness of Christ? We will be clo- rather, we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God comes again and burns everything away, we will remain. Why can we believe such a thing? Well, a huge factor throughout the book of Deuteronomy is the reality that Moses is impressing the law upon them, knowing that they cannot keep it. He's already seen their stiff-necked failure up in the wilderness to this point. Ultimately speaking, they do go after other gods, and Moses predicts this in chapter 32. He says, they have made me jealous with what is no god. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And we also know from the text that we read in Malachi that they do offer to God impure sacrifices, and so they do treat him as common. They do profane his name. The result of this is that they were made not my people. They were cut off and disowned. 2 Kings 17, 18 tells us this. Yahweh was angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence. So we conclude that not only was Israel prone to fail and meet judgment for their failure, but we also on our own, apart from God's actions in Christ Jesus, are never able to properly recognize God's glory or call on his name and offer to him the worship that he is due. And the sacrifices themselves, the sacrifice that's mentioned in the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 17, they point to the reality that we need a perfect and eternal sacrifice to secure our approval and favor in God's sight. Because an animal will not maintain God's presence. It only symbolizes the washing away of guilt. How can we keep God in the land? How can we maintain his presence? How can we maintain the, pre- the, the kind of ethical standpoint that we need to approach his throne? We remain by ourselves unjust, unrighteous, undeserving, and incapable of fulfilling this covenant, meriting its blessedness and remaining in its life-giving atmosphere. But the good news is that Moses himself, even while knowing Israel would fail, speaks as God's own voice of the covenantal grace of God. Despite the rampant failure, Moses says he will not forget the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have mercy upon them. He would cause them to live by every word that comes from his mouth. That's Deuteronomy 8. He would circumcise their hearts so that they would love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and so have life. That's Deuteronomy 30. God would accomplish this covenant mercy and give life to his people via the Son. The Son is that word that goes forth from his mouth that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He would be that eternally pure and perfect sacrifice without blemish who would offer himself in our stead to God. 
And so no further sacrifice would ever again be needed or necessary for the people to remain pure, for the people to be acceptable in the sight of God, and for the people to, as it were, climb the, mount, uh, climb the steps of the temple and approach his throne on that holy mountain. And he would do this by his obedience. He would treat God with the honor, the reverence, and the glory that is due to his name. And that's significant. He is, capable, he is capable and he did offer true and proper worship to the, 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 the triune, majestic Father. His work would also deal with the reality that our obedience is insufficient. And in this way, he would merit life in that land that flows with milk and honey. And this includes not just rejecting all the false gods, which the devil really does bring before him in his temptation in the wilderness. But it also includes properly honoring God, his Father, in all things. And the principal examples of this are throughout John's Gospel. All throughout John's gospel, we see him speak of his relationship with the Father. Over and over and again, he says, I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to glorify the Father. And therefore, he justly, he righteously, he justly declares, having earned the right to say so in John 17, I have glorified you on earth. And he closes declaring, I know you. And I have made known to them, that is your people, your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that love which you have loved me, or, or that the love with which you have loved me may be upon them. The reality is that the greater prophet that Moses looked forward to, the word who gives life to his people is Jesus Christ. And he says, come to me, all who are weak, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he does this. He gives life and comforting words by suffering the sanctions and giving us obedience through his spirit. Think about it. The very sanctions that this passage talks about for idolaters was borne by Christ outside the city gates. The image of the invisible God was purged on our behalf. He was reckoned to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There, the witness of one, the magistrate, recognized him as innocent, as blameless. There on that cross, the Father knew him to be righteous, and upon him he poured out his wrath for us. There we were crucified with him and in him raised to life. And now he lives and makes intercession for us. And he sends that spirit, the same spirit that Moses asked in Numbers 29, would be upon all people that they might prophesy, that they might rightly call on the name of the Lord. He sends that spirit to enable us to call on the name of the Lord by making the Lord known to us by writing his law on our hearts, fulfilling Moses' request in Deuteronomy, knowing they couldn't keep this kind of worship. 
by circumcising our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. What false god reckons themselves as guilty that his people might have life? What false god reckons his people as guilty that his people might have life? Or rather, what false god reckons themselves to be sin so that his people might have life? I think that, if anything, is a reason to believe in him, to remember our faith, our hope, our love, and our joy that we are able to call on the name of the Lord and that we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If anything, it changes the way that we go about reciting things like the Apostles' Creed. It's not just some rote activity. In that creed, we confess that we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit and what they have done for us to accomplish salvation. And so we can be confident as we recite things like that and reminded and joyful that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and burn away all that is impure. And then we will remain in that eternal city, imperishable, knowing him, beholding him, calling on him, forever. And I think that addresses the reality of the, of the struggle that we have in this Christian life, in the, in, in the, in the grind, in the trouble, in the sorrows, in the burnout, in the suffering, in the anguish. I can pause. I can fold my hands. I can bow my head. And I can pray to the one who reckoned himself to be sin that I might have life. So let's do that together now. Our Father, we come before you together this morning and we give you thanks, we give you praise that we can call on you as our triune God, that we can come before you as a people and even take your name upon our lips. You are the God of our salvation, our only God. And we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us with the hope that we have, the joy that we have, that we know you, and that you know us, that you are our God, and that we are your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.